This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as the senior pastor of Cornerstone Church. If you don't have a Bible this morning, if you'll raise your hands, our ushers have uh, free copies of the Bible so that you can follow along with us. We're going to be walking through this letter of the Apostle Paul to the Galatians. We're in a series of messages looking at this letter and celebrating the Protestant Reformation. So turn with me, please, to Galatians 3. We're going to pick up in verse 26. Because it's, it's the basis for the previous verses, as we'll see. But begin reading with me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, and we'll read down through chapter 4, verse 7. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then... You're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The Lord wants us to know this morning the greatness of His love. He wants you to know the greatness of His love for you through this text, through this letter this morning, I believe. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer begins one of the chapters with the following question, what is a Christian? 
What is a Christian? How would you answer that question? If uh, Dr. Packer was quizzing you this morning, what is a Christian? Here's what he says. The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. That's what Dr. Packer says a Christian is. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of the doctrine of adoption as taught in Scripture. The truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights that the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. The greatness of God's love. On April 3rd, 1507, when he was still a monk, Luther, Martin Luther, who we've talked a lot about these last few weeks, Luther was formally consecrated, ordained as a priest. His first celebration of the Mass was on May the 2nd. The belief was that in his sinful hands, bread and wine would be changed into the literal body and blood of Christ. Luther was terrified. He was afraid he would make a mistake. It was a large ceremony. Family and friends would come for the priest's first Mass. You would expect anybody to be a little bit nervous and stressed, but for Luther, it was much more than this. He knew that a mistake in communicating the words of this Mass, in his understanding, it would be a sin. And he later wrote down what he was thinking that day. I, ash, dust, and full of sins, was speaking with the living God, the eternal and true God. At such a time, someone should shake with fear. I agree. Such as when I read my first Mass. I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken by these words. The words read in the Mass. We present to you the living, true, and eternal One. Because I thought, how can I as a mere man address the divine majesty? As if I was in the presence of or in discussion with a mere human king. In fact, Luther did make a mistake. And in the middle of the celebration of his first Mass, he told the priest that was assisting him that he wanted to stop. But the other priest got angry and said, you will not stop. You will finish and you're going to do it fast. And so Luther did. He finished. It was many years later that Luther discovered the Gospel. Remember the tower in Wittenberg in the monastery. He learned the greatness of God's love for him in Christ. In that tower, he discovered that the righteous man lives by faith. And only then did he understand that it wasn't your inherent worthiness that made you able to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If that was the case, no one would ever be able to celebrate it. A person is counted worthy when they trust that God sent His Son for them. They trust by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. 
They're reconciled to God. Luther's problem was legalism. The same as the recipients of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Luther was like many genuine Christians today who just aren't certain of God's love for them. They can be suspicious of God. In light of their sin, they often wonder whether God really loves them. They have a tendency to think that God's just tolerating them, that He's frustrated with them. And like Luther, that God is eager to punish them. Can you relate to that? Is this you? If it is, I hope God's Word today will alter your view of God and His great love for you if you're a believer today. Our text is one of the great texts in Scripture. It reveals this great love of God. The text reveals that because of His great love through faith, you are number one, in Christ. Number two, sons of God. And number three, heirs according to to promise. So let's look at number one, through faith, you are in Christ. Verse 26, for, for, notice why that for is there. For, it means that verse 26 is the basis for the previous verses that Jake did a great job unpacking for us last week. We learned last week that the law was intended to function as a kind of tutor, a babysitter, if you will, until faith in Christ came. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's son, and God gave the Israelites the law of Moses for a season. But now, this time is concluded. Now believers, and note he says here, for in Christ you are all, including Gentiles. That's his point. All believers are sons of God. They've obtained the promise that God made to Abraham 430 years before He gave the law. The promise isn't obtained by keeping the law. It's obtained by trusting in Christ. And Paul's emphasis is on the fact that believers participate with Christ by faith. The era of the law has come to an end. And now, believers in Jesus Christ are God's children because they're united to Him by faith. Believers are no longer under a babysitter. They're now justified by faith alone. They've reached Maturity in this sense. Adulthood. They've obtained the inheritance, the promise. In Christ Jesus, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ, notice those words in verse 26. In Christ. It's a way that Paul expresses a very important reality. That the believer is united to Christ. In Christ. It's shorthand. He uses it more than 160 times in his, his letters. Through faith, we are in Christ. We are united to Christ. Verse 27, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on 
Christ. Christ stood before God as our representative. We are in Christ. It means we're united to Him in a representative way. It means we have a living union with Him, a deep relationship. Believers are baptized into Christ. They're united to Christ. All believers are God's sons when they are baptized with Him by faith in Him. This is why Paul talks about in other places believers being clothed with Christ, with the new self. If they're baptized and they're, they're immersed with Christ, they're baptized into His death, united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. They're clothed with Him. All are God's sons because they belong to Christ. They have a new identity. You have a new identity if you're a believer. And, and sonship, if you will, all hangs on this new identity. Are you united with Christ? Christ is the only true offspring of Abraham. If you are united to Him, you're the true offspring of Abraham. We have, we have a vital living relationship with Christ. We participate, as we'll see in this text, in His life. I am in Him and through His Spirit, He is in me. And the, the life of God, because we're in Christ, the life of God, the divine life flows through us when we believe. There's so much evidence of this. Every week, every Sunday morning when we're together, He is the vine. We are the branches He, he taught His disciples. And believers share in the life of Christ like He's the vine and we're a branch. And our union then is made effective by the, the Spirit. And the Spirit imparts the power of Christ Himself so that we can live the Christian life for the glory of God. Do you know this? It's a, it's a life-changing reality. By faith, we, we draw spiritual power, spiritual nourishment from the living Christ that enables us to live for His glory. Verse 28 then says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Through faith, believers are one in Christ. We just saw the nations in front of us. All one in Christ. United to Christ and united to one another as a result. In spite of the most significant human differences, Paul is intentionally drawing attention to those in verse 28. Ethnicity, social class, slave and free, gender. The issue in Galatians, and especially in chapter 3, is answering the question, 
who belongs to the family of Abraham? Who are the true sons and daughters of Abraham? And the answer is those who are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's very different than becoming a Jew. Becoming a Jew required circumcision. It required keeping the law of Moses. But the time has come. It's been fulfilled. And now God's people are those united to Christ. Verse 29 says, So if you are Christ, you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Believers belong Here's the amazing thing. You can, you can have a Jewish man that doesn't belong to the family of Abraham and a Gentile woman who does. <laughs> because believers belong to Christ. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, slave, free, all united together by faith. As Jeff prayed this morning for our women's conference this weekend, I've just already heard so many reports and just been encouraged about how God answered our prayers. We're so thankful for the women in this church. Thanks for participating. So many serve to make this conference a reality. And I'm always amazed when I watch people serve and the way they sacrifice for things like this. It just takes an immense amount of work. And I'm always deeply encouraged when I see this. I never take it for, for granted. I've been a pastor a long time, and I know a lot of pastors who don't experience this. There, there are many churches where most of the serving is done by very few people, and, and a lot of times it's the church-paid staff. And by God's grace, by the work of His Spirit, this isn't our experience. Right now, people are suffering in children's ministry. It's evidence that God is at work in our church and our, our lives. This week, I observed people serving in preparation for the conference. I love that. They're setting up for a conference, and, and I'll come into the lobby, and they're doing tons of work. The staff worked beyond what they're paid for. And I'm so thankful for that. But I also observed. Many women here sacrificing their time and, and using their gifts. If I want to make a joke, I walk out, hey, you guys need some tips on interior decorating? I'm here if you need me for a women's conference. I could help you. But they're using their gifts so that this conference would result in, in grace. Real grace for people. I saw Paulette and Lillian and Megan Mason working many hours, turning this building into this inviting venue for a conference for women, investing so much time. One day I was there and I said, you're working overtime today. You know, like you should be getting paid for this. One of the women responded, you can guess who it was. We were here yesterday too. Why, why do they serve like this? Why do they sacrifice like this? Janie and Julie, the speakers. 
They've invested so much in, in investing and helping and encouraging women. It affected the women at the conference. Nyla and Allison, their testimonies. I've already heard about these. You know what the issue is? They belong to Christ. All these women. That's what I was thinking. They all belong to Christ. They're sons of God. Number two, through faith, you are sons of God. In Christ, verse 26, you're all sons of God. Because they're united to Christ. They're all sons of God. Believers are God's son. This is our identity if you're a Christian. If you, if you ask the question, who am I? The answer oftentimes is about, well, our life experiences, where we grew up, what our parents were like, our families were like, our education. But the answer to this question, who am I, comes from our position in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. We are in Christ. That's who I am. That's who you are. There, isn't a, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There isn't slave or free. There is no male field. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. Here's what Jerry Bridges says in his book titled, Who Am I? Paul's not being gender specific, referring to verse 28 and ignoring women. In Galatians 3.27-29, he makes it clear that both males and females are included in the category of sons. Then why sons? Because Paul was placing a priority on communicating clearly to his immediate audience. In the Jewish culture of the day, only males were eligible to receive a part of the family inheritance. So, far from putting down women or ignoring them, he's actually making them equal with men in sharing the family inheritance. We are all one. It was radical. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Spiritual offspring of Abraham. Equally heirs of God's promise. Far from putting them down. Paul in the New Testament doesn't put down women. The Gospel doesn't suppress women. Here we discover God's amazing grace for all. Our culture exploits women. And then says to those who place their confidence in God's Word that God's Word is oppressive for women. You know, everybody seems shocked that there's, there's sexual harassment in Hollywood. Hollywood exploits women every weekend. At times, Paul recognizes that men and women are different and they have been given different roles by their Creator. But he never lowers them below men. Never. Never does he communicate that in some way, your gender makes you above or below another human being, another person. Never. He never does that. Including 
in our text. You're all sons of God. There you have it. Chapter 4, verse 1 now. He's going to give us an illustration. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Remember that the Galatian churches were made up of Gentile Christians. They're they're in the process of deserting the gospel because they're being influenced by false teachers and false teaching. And Paul couldn't believe it. Remember in chapter 3, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's It's like an evil spell has been cast over them. For for Paul to embrace legalism in an effort to be reconciled to God, to add to the gospel, it's like being under the power of an evil spirit. It's like being deluded by magic. They, They had embraced the gospel. They had received God's grace. And now they're going to abandon it? They're going to adopt the law of Moses to be reconciled to God? They're they're being taught the work of Christ is not sufficient to be reconciled to God? Who has bewitched you? That's not the purpose of the law. It was never the purpose of the law. Nobody knows this better than Paul. It's false teaching. It's a misapplication of the law. It's a distortion of the gospel. The law was never meant to save people from their sin. And so Paul uses this metaphor to help them see this truth. Israel under the law was like a child waiting for their inheritance. A minor who didn't have access to their inheritance. They're an heir, true enough. But it doesn't make a difference in their life at this time. They're, therefore, they're about the same as a slave. And he introduces that so that he can talk about the bondage of being under the law or being under sin. A minor has the same position as a slave. Someone under the law is in bondage. Verse 3, chapter 4, in the same way we also... When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When he's he's applying this illustration, he reminds them they were enslaved to spiritual forces. Elementary principles of the world. Legalism is worldly. Legalism is worldliness. Regardless of whether it's through the law of Moses or just idols. It's, it's worldly. It doesn't rise to the level of the gospel. It's slavery. Prior to their conversion, they were ignorant of the Mosaic law, but they were enslaved to their sin, to their idols, to their false gods. And for them to abandon the gospel and come under the Mosaic law was, was no less than returning to bondage. And he is perplexed. Legalism is slavery. Paul is angry that they want to leave the liberty of the gospel for this 
through faith. They are sons who have reached maturity. So, point number three, they are heirs. You are heirs. According to the promise to Abraham. Verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, listen, this is the good news. God sent forth His Son. That's the Gospel. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is what we want to tell you about. This is the good news. God sent forth His Son, Jesus Christ, born of woman, born under the law. And verse 5 gives the reason to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's only one true son of Abraham. The, the offspring. And that's Christ. And all those who are united to Him, all those who belong to Christ, all those clothed with Christ, they are the heirs of the Abrahamic promises. That's His point. God's provision, God's grace is revealed in these verses. This, this is a description of the most important moment in all of history, in God's redemptive history. This is it. God sent forth His Son. This is our hope. This is the hope of the whole world. This is the only hope of being reconciled to our Creator God. Apart from these saving events, there's no hope. God has intervened. He has taken initiative. Why? Great love. He has provided a Savior. The new era has arrived in salvation history. The fullness of time has come. God's saving promises are fulfilled. God took initiative, sent His Son. It's His great love. He was born of woman, fully human. He was truly God, fully man. He's the mediator between God and men. He's our only hope. He lived under the law. But He was the exception. He is the one man who didn't live under the dominion and tyranny of sin. He's the true offspring of Abraham. The true Israel. The true Son of God. He obeyed the law. Everybody else fell short of the glory of God. He perfectly kept the law. And then, He took the curse of the law on Himself. Why? So that He could free you. He could free me. He could free all those who've been held captive by the power of sin. He died in our place as our substitute, so we don't have to die. We weren't orphans. We were slaves to sin. We were objects of wrath. We deserved the just wrath of God, the penalty of the law. We were lawbreakers. A price had to be paid for our redemption. And the price was paid when Jesus Christ gave His life as a ransom to redeem us from our sin and liberate us from bondage. It was His atoning death. We're forgiven. We're forgiven. Never again. 
will we experience God's wrath? God is no longer eager to punish us. I've, I've told this story many times. And I th- I'm thankful for a congregation that loves repeated stories. When my son Bryant was six, he should have been spanked more. Just let me say that. He wrote on the wall his name, on the door. B-R-I-E-N-T. There's only one, Bryant. So being the sleuth that I was, I deduced, he wrote on the door. In our home, we had a rule. I ran a tight ship. No longer the case. I've been displaced. But back in the day, I ran a tight ship. And there was a rule. If you damage something in the house, I don't care if it's an accident, you're going to be disciplined. The Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of correction brings it out. And I believe that. I found Bryant. I looked at him. I said, I saw a door downstairs with your name written on it. And he had a little smirk on his face. (laughs) Oh, you think this is funny? Do you understand the rules? That if you damage something in the house, do you know the rules about that? Yeah, still got the little smirk though. Yeah. Yeah, I understand the rules. You understand dad is coming and hell is coming with dad? You understand that? Still a little smirk? I didn't say that. I'm kidding. But I was giving that impression. Then, So what's up, buddy? And his response was, Mom already gave me my spanking. You know what I said? Give me five, man. Let's go get some ice cream. Let's have fun. Even a six-year-old knows you don't get spanked twice. He should have been smirking. He was happy. It was over. It was done. Now it's all love, man. The wrath of God, it's over. Luther so dreaded. God was eager to punish him. God is eager to punish sin. But God punished sin. God sent forth His Son. And you know this to be the case. Because God also sent forth His Spirit. Verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father, This is a charismatic moment. I was reading one scholar, commentator, who's a cessationist. And he said, this is a charismatic moment. I can't find the quote. But he said, this is a charismatic moment. Oh, here it is. The Spirit works charismatically. 
so that believers gladly exclaim that God is their beloved Father. The Spirit works charismatically so that believers gladly exclaim that God is their Father. They received the Spirit. Remember chapter 3, by hearing with faith. He supplied them with the Spirit. He worked miracles among them. They experienced many manifestations of the Spirit by hearing with faith. It was the guarantee. It was the proof. You are sons. Listen, the greatest gift is God pours, God sent His Son, and then God sends His Spirit into our hearts, the core of our beings, the wellspring of life, and we cry out, Abba, the Aramaic for Father. Similar to what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when He cried out, Abba, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass. Abba, Father. The Spirit is sent forth too into our hearts applying redemption. And you know you're a son of Abraham because of the Spirit's work in your life. You cry out now to God. Abba, Father. God wants you to see His great love for you today. He wants you to know the greatness of His love for you. Verse 7, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. You've reached maturity. You've received the, the inheritance. You're not a child anymore. You're not under the law. You don't need a babysitter. You've come to Christ. You've received the gift of the Spirit. We're going to have a time now of prayer. I want you to listen to Luther, the, the reformed monk. Okay? He's discovered the greatness of God's love for him. And he's talking about prayer. Listen to this. Your prayer is not one cent less valuable than St. Peter's, the first pope. Okay? A saint, Peter. Your prayer is not one cent less valuable than St. Peter's. And this is the reason. I will grant that he is holier as far as his person is concerned. But the commandment and obedience upon which St. Peter based his prayer, I base my own also. You have needs enough, and all of you can identify with what he said in the 16th century. You're lacking in faith. You're lacking in love. You're lacking in patience. You're lacking in gentleness, in chastity. My wife, my children are sick. Then pray undauntedly and with sure confidence because God has commanded you to pray and He didn't command it in order to deceive you and make a fool, a monkey of you. He wants you to pray and to be confident that you will be heard. He wants you to open your bosom that He may give to you. There's a transformed, reformed monk who used to be terrified that God was eager to punish him. But God has sent His Son and He has sent His Spirit into that man and a great reformation took place 
And now he knows God isn't eager to punish him. He's eager to answer his prayers. And he's eager to answer your prayers. So I'm going to have the worship team come and all the folks come that are going to be praying for you. Please stand. And as we continue to sing, please come down front and let us pray for you. We could be praying for any number of things. We could be praying for you to come to Christ if you came this morning and you're not a Christian. Please come. Let us share the Gospel with you and pray for you. If you are a believer and you just want a a refreshing moment to be reminded of God's great love for you, this is a perfect morning for that. Or if you're here today and you just, like Luther, you know all these things, I have all these needs, I just want to pray in light of the fact that God is not eager to punish me. He's eager to answer my prayer. Please come and let us pray for you. Father, I thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Word, Lord. Thank You for sending Your Son, for taking initiative. When we were Your enemies, Lord, You sent Your Son to save us. And we give You all the glory this morning in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message by Bill Kittrell given during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in celebrating God's grace and pursuing God's purpose.